Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 142 of Dogcast Radio, which is a departure from our usual style of show and is an in-depth interview with author Ted Kerasoti about his new book, Pucker's Promise, The Quest for Longer-Lived Dogs. Ted met his canine soulmate in Merle, the young dog who was living wild, who chose Ted just as much as Ted chose him. Together, they forged an enduring and endearing partnership. The book Merle's Door, Lessons from a Free-Thinking Dog, interweaves Ted and Merle's love story with fascinating research. It was a New York Times bestseller, and thousands of readers took Merle into their hearts. But Merle's death broke Ted's heart, and though writing and talking about his dog helped him heal, he wanted to find out how to enable himself and other dog lovers to put off that final parting as long as possible. Pucker's Promise contains information that is both fascinating and horrifying about the factors that affect our dog's lifespans, but it is also the intimate story of a man and his dog. This book starts in the aftermath of Merle's death, when many people counselled Ted to choose a dog that looked very different from Merle. But Ted had his heart set on a dog that looked as much like his previous dog as possible. I did. I really loved how Merle looked, and I loved how he acted and how he performed in the outdoors. So I, I wanted another dog who was similar to him. And I knew I was never going to have a carbon copy Mm. of Merle. Nonetheless, I wanted a dog who could do many of the things in the outdoors, or rather all the things in the outdoors that Merle did with me. And I was quite in love with his looks, that labby, houndish look and that uh, butterscotch color. So, Uh, I didn't think there was anything wrong with getting another dog that met those criteria and people's fears that I would simply be judging Pucka by Merle's standards were hardly justified. I don't judge Pucka by Merle's standards. They're different dogs. Yeah. uh, They do different things. And Pucka has qualities that... Merle did not have, uh, which which I appreciate. So uh, Pucka is very much his unique dog, and I very much appreciate him for who he is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you. I have to say, within the first chapter, I'd cried because reading that, I, I mean, I had huge problems with, with Buddy's health last year, and I thought I was going to lose him. And I so identified with what you were saying about you look at, look at people with puppies and you think... Do you know what you've signed up for? Do you know that, you know, 10, 12, 14 years down the line, that dog, that puppy is going to break your heart into pieces? And when you've gone through that or or come near to that, it does, it makes you think that every time you see someone with a puppy, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Mm. And And it certainly makes one think, well, will I go through this once again? Yes. Down the road. Do I have the uh, resolute heart that (laughs) will will allow me to get over yet another heartbreak and go through this again. And 
this was one of the reasons that I wrote this new book. I thought, gosh, if we can only get two, three more years, four more years with our present dogs, uh, wouldn't that be lovely not to have to say goodbye so soon? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, one of the things that really struck me was when you were in your truck just after Merle had died and you weren't able to sort of vacuum his hair off the seat. Correct. And right. That is how grief is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I still have some of Merle's artifacts that Pucka has inherited, like his blue panniers that Merle hiked so much with, and now Pucka hikes so much with. And those things are hard to get rid of, and I'm glad to see that that Pucka is putting them to good use. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, you are so thorough in your research, you know, before you get Pucka. And, um, you know, the, the, the things that you consider, you know, I, I think if everyone put that amount of thought into getting a dog, the world would be a different and a much better place. But, you know, as you point out, it's a huge commitment to take on a dog. And the story you tell of um, Chance, the rescue dog that you sort of want to get out of rescue, I think demonstrates how personal living with a dog is because he fits... He, he he does find a good fit, doesn't he, Chance? But the first um, person that says that they will look after Chance for you, it, he's not a good fit for at all, is, is he? No. And that was such an instructive lesson. <clears throat> There's Chance, who comes from a, a shelter in Los Angeles, and he goes to a friend's home in Palm Desert, two, three hours east of Los Angeles in the Mojave and rather elegant ranch home. And he terrorizes her cats and upsets her dogs and chews her TV remote and her cell phone and her carpets. And he's just a dog that anyone would say, hey, back to the slammer with you Mm. and good riddance. But of course, I wasn't willing to do that. And fortunately, another friend uh, was willing to take him. And, and just so people are clear, I was on my way to Europe and India oh. for a long time, and I wasn't in the position to take Chance. And then I was leery of raising Chance and Pucka at the same time. I didn't think I had enough energy to do that and also to continue researching and writing the book. So he found, I found for him a place in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Appalachia and Virginia and the woman who took him has a bunch of dogs and it was a perfect fit. Uh, Chance did not destroy her carpets, her cell phones, her TV remote. (laughs) He began to sing. He was so happy and he got along famously with his new human and canine companions, which showed me that sometimes when we say a dog is behaving poorly, that we're really not translating what the dog is telling us. The dog is telling us, hey, I don't like these people. I don't like these other dogs. And I really learned this time around with Pucka, who does not like some other dogs in our house, and Chance did not like these other dogs, that dogs' wishes when it comes to their friends ought to be respected. We just assume that all dogs will like all dogs. 
Well, gosh, <laughs> we would never say that about people ever mm. or friends or family. We give people uh, much more uh, specific preferences and say, yeah, we're not going to like everyone. They're not our cup of tea. And and so I think we need to do this more to dogs, especially if we're considering bringing another dog into the family household. The first being who needs to approve of that dog is the other dog. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned a word there, translating dogs. Um, and you you certainly do that, and you do it so well. And all the dog characters in your book, you know, are, are charming Um and you do it so touchingly at times. I'm thinking of Gwen the Boxer, who's a very, you know, she's only in the book for a very short time. Gwen the Boxer with um, the, the tumour in her leg. And, yeah. and when her, it's Magda, isn't it? When her owner is told Correct. that she has the cancer. And, and it's just when you say that Gwen looks at her and, and sort of says, are you all right? Why did you make that noise? Yes. And that's just an example. But you, you put words in, in their mouths so well. that You, you do translate them. Well... Uh, maybe that's because I'm part dog, uh, <laughs> but I've always tried to pay attention to what wildlife and domestic animals are, are saying. And it seems that, that dogs are particular, they've lived with us for ages and ages. They have very distinct body languages, facial expressions, vocalizations, posturing. And if you but pay attention to that, you can have a, a running, ongoing conversation with them. They're, they are trying to do that with us, and their success is predicated upon our willingness to pay more attention to them. Yeah, yeah. You, you certainly do that with Pucker. He comes, I mean, people had fallen in love with Merle just as you had, um, you know, and Merle was very well loved and, and we knew him so well. And in a way, Pucker had some very big paws to fill. Um, he does come across as very charming and um, and so inventive and clever. You know, for example, you tell the story about when you hike, you, when you, you're going up a mountain, you don't want to throw a ball all the time. And he plays fetch with gravity, doesn't he? He lets the gravity yes, <laughs> do the work. Yeah. <laughs> and what I love about Pucker is his ability, his ability to make really fine distinctions. Uh, the example you use, the way originally he learned to play fetch solitaire <clears throat> was that I, he's, he's a yellow lab, he's a retriever, uh, he would willingly have me throw sticks and balls endlessly. So I enforced this no-throw rule as we were going uphill with sticks until we got to the top and then if he wanted to break a stick off a tree and bring it to me, I was willing to throw it standing on the summit. Well, he found this tennis ball going up Snow King, the ski mountain at the edge of Jackson, the town down valley from us. And he came over and placed it at my feet and looked up at me imploringly and his eyes saying, as you can see, this is not a stick. We make an exception and throw this tennis ball for me. You never said you wouldn't throw a tennis ball. And I said, no, thank you, Pucka. We'll keep going. And the tennis ball placed on the catwalk started rolling downhill. And he looked at it 
with this look of how is the tennis ball moving away without Ted throwing it? <laughs> and it, I, as I mentioned in the book, it was as if Newton saw the apple fall and suddenly thought of gravity. And Pucker realized, well, there is a force that exists that makes tennis balls roll downhill. And he fetched it, came back up, and went above me on the catwalk and very mischievously placed it down on the catwalk looking at me and gave it a push with his nose. <laughs> downhill. No throw rule be damned. And down he hurtled, picking it up, and then he continued to play fetch solitaire all the way to the top, which he has done to this day two years later. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, this, there's so many stories that you tell about Pucker that, I mean, are really gorgeous. One of my favourites is, um, I mean, there's a whole cast of, of, of dogs in the book and your, your neighbourhood dogs. Um, and it's Burley, isn't it, that keeps taking the ball from him and you can't work yeah. out why. Why, mm. does he, why does Pucker let him take the ball off him? Right. And I couldn't figure this out. We'd be playing fetch out there with Burley, a golden retriever, AJ, a yellow, another yellow lab, Goo, the English setter, the nervous English setter, and Pucka. And I'd get done, come to my desk, and a few minutes later, Pucka would always have the ball because he was the youngest and fastest. And I would leave Pucka with the ball, and I'd come back in and set to work, and there would Pucka, there he'd be three minutes later, standing on my desk bench it's a piano bench with his front paws his shoulder pressed against mine looking into my eyes earnestly and saying burley's stolen the ball <laughs> only you can get it back only you and aj and goo would be behind him wagging their tails in solidarity only you can get that ball back from mean burley and out i'd go and call burley and he'd shamble up and place the ball down at my feet <laughs> And the other Goo and AJ would be barking, let the games begin. And off we go. So I couldn't figure this out until one day, maybe two, three days after all this began, we, we came, I came in, the dogs followed me, and Pucka lay down behind my chair, squeegeeing the ballers in his mouth. Burl, Goo and AJ were lying in the office too, but Burley being much longer coated and it was hot, went into the bathroom down the hall that faces north and it's very cool in there. And out of the corner of my eye or out of my ear, I hear the squeegeeing stop. I hear Pucka get up and leave with the ball. And so I tiptoe to the door and look down the hall and I can see into the bathroom and there is Pucka placing the ball in front of Burley. And Burley doesn't want to it up. He's too hot. So Pucka picks the ball up and pushes it against Burley's snout until Burley opens his mouth, gets to his feet, harumph, goes out the dog door. I race back and sit down at my bench and Pucka comes racing back into the office, stands on the bench and doing the same thing. He looks into my eyes, tail lashing, Burley's stolen the ball. You have get it and i said you faker you're all in cahoots you just want to keep me playing <laughs> it's just lovely and such an insight into how much more thought dogs have than we we give them credit for yeah you, you know julie I, i'm very fortunate in that my job is 
is to watch dogs <laughs> and and to write about them and i'm blessed to have my office in my home to have these dog doors to have all this huge fields and wilderness around here and so i can watch dogs be dogs whereas many of us who have to work in an office and commute and leave our dogs home don't get the opportunity to see our dogs in action except in very constrained situations on the leash at the dog park on a walk so uh it may be that yes i'm observant but also i have many opportunities that other people don't have to watch their dogs yeah yeah i think that's true um and and you are indeed very lucky um as we speak, we ought to say that um, right now, um, after eight days on sale, uh, Pucker's Promise is 29 already on the New York Times bestseller list, isn't it? It is. You're very kind to mention that. It was, well, congratulations. Uh, thank you very much. We were all thrilled, we meaning my publisher and publicist and agent and, of course, my friends and myself. And, and if Pucker had an inkling about what this meant, he'd be thrilled as well. <laughs> Uh, so yes, it's it's a quite a big deal, as as you very well know. That bestseller list is yeah. is important, and it's probably the the best indication, at least in in North America, of how your book is selling. And for it to get on there after only eight days uh, is really a testament to how uh, many people loved Merle and have gone out and. And bought this book and and also how it's attracted some new readers just by the subject matter. All of us, virtually all of us, want our dogs to live longer. Yeah, yeah. Now, Merle's door um, wove together your, your story, yours and Merle's story, and, you know, a lot of research. And this book is written in a very similar style. And... Um, some of the research that you sort of you waded through because there's so much of it and and um and it, it's all very interesting but so complex some of it and and sort of one expert will say one thing and another expert will say a contradictory thing but one of the things that i think that is going to take a lot of people by surprise is that there are health benefits to leaving a dog entire or uncut yes there are indeed Health benefits. I, I spent a lot of time looking through the veterinary research, the veterinary literature, and over the last decade and a half or so, there's been emerging evidence that intact dogs are healthier than those who have been spayed or neutered. Intact dogs suffer fewer adverse reactions. They're in general less obese. And they are less prone to ACL injuries, tears of the anterior cruciate ligament in the knee. They have less urinary incontinence. Quite important, they have less endocrine dysfunction, such as adrenal disease and thyroid disease. And, and most worrisome amongst all that data 
is that which shows that spayed and neutered dogs have higher incidences of certain cancers. They have about a twofold risk to developing osteosarcoma, bone cancer, than does an intact dog. Their risk for bladder cancer is two to four times as great as an intact dog. And their risk for hemangiosarcoma, which is a cancer of the blood vessels, is about 160% higher for a male dog and 500% higher for a spayed female than an intact dog. This is, this is no small matter, and it's, and it's not mere, merely theoretical when you consider that hemangiosarcoma is the leading killer of golden retrievers in North America. And from the data I've seen, it may be one of the leading killers of golden retrievers in the United Kingdom. And one of the fascinating little pieces of of information about the benefits of keeping a dog entire or uncut or intact is that the testosterone and estrogen that are produced by an intact dog can forestall or prevent many of these nasty conditions. And it may be one of the reasons that golden retrievers in the United Kingdom live about a year longer than those in the United States. Many more people in the United Kingdom leave their dogs entire as opposed to the United States where almost all dogs are spayed and neutered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that research is fascinating because... When you start to look at the breed differences, you've already mentioned golden retrievers, but there's there's Bernese mountain dogs. I'm just looking at my notes I've made. So um, for a Bernese mountain dog, I think it was um, the risk of mammary cancer is low. So you might want to leave the ovaries in, but... Uh, and and they they will protect against cancers and other diseases, but you might want to sort of um, take the the uterus away. And and this difference between breeds is going to make it very difficult for people to work out what's best for their dog, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I think this is where the veterinary community hasn't done a very good job at illuminating the costs and benefits of some of these procedures. For example, I, I'm looking in front of me uh, of, at a list of the 51 breeds that were ranked by their risk for mammary cancer. And you look at, uh, let's see, boxers are number three. Dobermans are number two. I'm trying to find number one. There it is. English Springer Spaniels mm-hmm. are number one. So Labrador Retrievers are number 28. Golden Retrievers are number 35. Cavaliers are 38. Okay? Bearded Collies are 45. Bernese Mountain Dogs are 41. And... Uh, you know, they're at the bottom of the list, Newfoundland's 49. And so one has to ask oneself, should I spay a, a Newfoundland whose risk of mammary cancer is so small uh, only to increase that dog's risk of some other very serious cancers many times? However, if one has an English Springer Spaniel and her risk is number one on the list for mammary cancer, it may be a very wise idea 
to spay her if she's not intended for breeding in order to forestall uh, something that can be quite a nasty and fatal disease. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that's the key, isn't it? That our vets need to know this information so they can advise us with with as much information as possible. I mean, the other thing that I was so grateful for how our vets reacted um, was Buddy had mast cell tumours and an adrenal uh, tumour last year. With the mast cell tumour, as soon as we arrived at the surgery and she, she looked at it, she said straight away, I'm going to aspirate this, uh, needle aspirate it. Um, and Buddy, bless him, just sat there and she, she put the needle into the, the lump and, and sucked the cells out and he just sat there. He wasn't very happy, but he did it. Um, you visited a cancer um, clinic in California, wasn't it, I think? Um, and they said that the most four, the, the most dangerous four words in the English language, let's just watch it, because some vets will leave those lumps and bumps and not check them out. And then before you know it, your dog's got cancer and he's going to lose a limb or his life. And so it really is a case of if we're, if we're more proactive with this, we can help our dogs live longer. Absolutely, Julie. And, and if I heard this once, I heard it repeatedly. I visited four different specialty oncology centers, one in California, the one you mentioned, one in Fort Collins, Colorado, Colorado State University, the University of Missouri, uh, Vet Training College, and then uh, quite a famous one back eats, the one at Tufts University, the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine. And all of the four chief oncologists said variations of, of what you just quoted, what's the four most dangerous words in the English language, let's just watch it. All of them repeatedly saw dogs whose cancers had progressed four to six months. And the general practitioner vet had told the client, let's just watch this lump when it was tiny and would have been a very minor excision. And now the dog had to have its leg amputated and go through chemotherapy and and quite often did not survive. And so all these oncologists said really urged general practitioner vets and their clients to aspirate or biopsy a lump as soon as it was noticed and, and not hesitate because as as one of the oncologists said, you know, cancer caught early is one of the most preventable chronic diseases. So their advice to clients was if your vet says, let's just watch it, find another vet or go to an oncologist. Mm. Yeah. And I guess with some people, if their vet did say, let's just watch it to some people, you you know, you could take comfort in that and think, oh, we don't need to do anything. And it's a very hard subject to, you know, hard thing to confront that your dog may have cancer because it sounds like a death sentence, you know, and I just panicked when I heard it, but it is preventable and we do need to grapple with that. Yes. Uh, as Greg Ogilvie at Carlsberg, Carlsbad Clinic, a very well-known North American oncologist, said uh, knowledge is power is life. And if you can have knowledge about something and tackle it early, you can actually, as you say, nip these cancers in the bud rather than being in denial and then being unable to do very much for your dog six months down the road. Yeah, yeah. Um, we follow your, your quest for pucker 
um, initially, your quest to find your next dog. Um, and you, you turn away from rescue because of this, you know, the... the um, the neutering issue you know that's not going to lead you down the healthiest path um and you turn to breeders and my goodness that's another minefield entirely isn't it it is (laughs) (laughs) well one of the things that that astounded me ted was that you you say warnings about breeding for extreme anatomical featured appeared not long after the kennel club began to register dogs in 1903 what the heck are we still doing in 2013 with so many dogs bred for anatomical, you know, extreme anatomical features, what's that's 110 years. It is. <laughs> it, it is astonishing, isn't it, that the Kennel Club and the American Kennel Club, and and pardon me if I if I put the British Kennel Club before the Kennel Club. Everyone in in the UK knows what the Kennel Club is, but uh, American listeners. Uh, might not know. So first the British Kennel Club and then the American Kennel Club have done very little over this last century to improve the health of dogs and stop the uh, slow slide of certain breeds towards being functionally crippled. And and let's take short-faced dogs, pugs, Pekingese, English bulldogs. I put photos in the book of what some of those dogs looked like in England and in Europe back in the 19th century, uh, right around when the Kennel Club was founded and got underway. They had much longer snouts. They had higher legs. They had shorter coats. They were functional dogs who could breathe run. And slowly, uh, they became these, uh, Charles Darwin called them monstrosities. Uh, Why? Because it seems that judges have been willing to award a dog that has a slightly more exaggerated feature than the its fellows in the ring and by bits and pieces incrementally we've gotten dogs who uh in the case of these short-faced ones have tremendous respiratory problems Uh uh you know where does the fault lie perhaps in standards that have been slowly modified to uh not highlight function, but highlight form. And also uh, with judges who have increasingly awarded form rather than function. The the Kennel Club has to be commended for what it did at Crufts last year in, in 2012. And it instituted veterinary checks for best of breed winners for the first time. And Half a dozen dogs were disqualified. That was never done before. And it may not have been done had there not been so much uh, bad publicity that arose from Jemima Harrison's documentary, Pedigree Dogs Exposed, which aired on the BBC in 2008 and really got the ball rolling in terms 
of the public and parliament saying, you know, this is this can no longer be tolerated. Uh, our producing dogs who by any standard except the kennel clubs and these breeders are not very healthy. Uh-huh. That that documentary shook the dog world, certainly in the UK, to its core. It, I mean, it really, it caused a, a lot of um, disagreement. It was necessary, I think, but it, it really, sh- you know, shook things up. And as you say, that was one of the things, the, the public opinion was one of the things that actually got things moving. You you point that out several times that it's it's up to us. We're not powerless. You know, we can make choices about whether, you know, the things we have in our environment and about the dogs we buy or, you know, will accept. Um, and and one of the things you say is when you're going to, to talk to a breeder, you need to arm yourself again with knowledge. You need to have a list of questions to ask, don't you? You do. And for many purebred dogs a lot of the diseases they come down with are absolutely preventable. Let's talk about Labradors. Both you and I are Labrador people. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are three common diseases, progressive retinal atrophy, centronuclear myopathy, a muscle-wasting disease, and exercise-induced collapse in which an exercising dog's back end just collapses. Well, all three of those are caused by the meeting of two like recessive genes. And you can give the dam and the sire a DNA test, simple to administer. It's either a cheek swab or a blood test and know beforehand whether any of the puppies in your prospective litter will have these diseases. They're absolutely preventable. And so there's no longer any excuse for a dog being blinded crippled or dying from one of these diseases. And similarly, other breeds have appropriate DNA health screenings and orthopedic screenings. We can know beforehand uh, whether a dam or a sire has good or excellent hips or bad hips and make appropriate breeding choices not to mate dogs whose hips or elbows are, are not up to snuff. Yeah, yeah. So as you say, there's no excuse for us then not to know about these tests and to demand that, you know, we, we ask our breed, what well, we insist our breeders have done these tests, you know, and we get the healthiest dogs possible. Yeah. I met breeders when I was on my quest for Pucka who said, Oh no, look how healthy my dogs are. Mm. I don't need to do these tests. And I immediately scratched these breeders off because Just because a dog looks healthy does not mean that she or he is not carrying a recessive gene for a particular condition. Abby, Pucka's mother, had a recessive gene for exercise-induced collapse. His father, Taylor, was clear. We knew beforehand that none of those puppies would ever have exercise-induced collapse. But some of them could very well inherit Abby's recessive gene, and Pucka did. So Pucka is phenotypically absolutely normal, never will suffer from exercise-induced collapse. But he can never be mated with a dog who also has a recessive gene. So this is very easy to tell, And when and if I mate Pucka, 
I will have those DNA tests done on the dam so we know that the puppies for at least these three diseases will be perfectly healthy. Yeah, yeah. Now, we, we may have sort of not done, done dogs a favour in the way we've bred them, but you explain, and I have to say, you make the science very accessible. If I can understand what you're saying here, <laughs> anybody can. So, you, no, you do present it very well. Um, and you, you, you say about sort of... Um, you, there's a scene where you and um, Pucker watch wolves and bears... Um, sort of vying with each other for a carcass, and and you and as you do, you you tie the research in with that. It's beautifully done. Um, but you say sort of with with evolution, there's reasons behind why bears have longer lifespans and achieve maturity, sexual maturity later, and sort of wolves have had to bring it forward and and sort of live faster, if you like. But th- again, that's there's so many aspects of that, so many factors in um, affecting it. It's it's a really complicated, but you do present it beautifully. But tell us about wolves and bears and why they've evolved to have different lifespans. Well, think of it this way. <clears throat> let's Let's start with mice, because that's really quite understandable. If you're a mouse or you're the ancestor of a mouse long ago, almost everyone is going to eat you. Bigger mammals, birds, reptiles. So those mice that had a predisposition to mature early and have their litters earlier on in their life got to pass on their genes. But if you, as a mouse, delayed a few weeks longer, you were taken out of the gene pool. You got eaten. And so over the course of time, the age at which mice matured, had their litters, was made shorter and shorter. Well, if you're, a say, a grizzly bear, armed with long teeth and claws, no one's going to harm you. And while you're young, you have your great brig mother to protect you. Well, unlike a mouse, you cannot live in a quarter of an acre in a field and get all the food you need. You need to range widely, find all the different plants at the different seasons, insects, carcasses. And so you take years, you need years to learn all this, and your mother needs years to pass on this information to you. And so those grizzly bears who were predisposed to mature later and have their cubs later were favored by natural selection because they got the opportunity to learn more of the foods, learn more wisdom from their mother before they matured and they could pass that on. So the age of grizzly bears was steadily extended. Well, if you're a wolf, your lifespan is someplace between mice and grizzly bears, but it's closer to mice because your life is so dangerous. You have to take down big animals who have sharp hooves and antlers and horns frequently in order to eat. Plus, you also have to defend your territory against other wolves. So once again, if you're a wolf who is predisposed to mature later, the likelihood might be that your genes would be taken out of the gene pool before you could mate 
and pass them on. In this way, steadily over the course of evolution, those wolves who matured sooner got to pass on their genes and those who did not were lost from the gene pool. In this way, today, an average wolf here in Yellowstone National Park lives only three to four years in the wild. Mm-hmm. Although live 12 to 15 years in captivity where it's much safer. Now, our dogs are the direct descendants of wolves, sharing 99.9% of their DNA. They're almost totally genetically wolves, and as many of us have witnessed behaviorally, they act a lot like wolves. Unfortunately, they've inherited this fateful genetic legacy, a wolf's short life. And so they are never going to live as long as we are. However, how we breed and care for them can either shorten or extend their already naturally brief lives. Yeah, yeah. And I think this book will help a lot of people make better decisions. There's a lot of humour in the book and I loved that and one of my favourites and it really made me chuckle and I read it out to to, um, Jenny and Anthony was I can just imagine the outrage the lady at the tennis ball company who Uh (laughs) I loved that bit do do you want to tell us? Uh, Well Pucker was like many dogs loves tennis balls and he would destroy them in about three minutes and so I was thinking watching him tear them apart What's in, what, are, what is in tennis balls? Is it good for Pucka? Is it good for all dogs? So I set out on this quest to find out what was in tennis balls. And I started calling by, started the quest by calling Wilson Tennis Balls and said, can you tell me what's in your tennis balls? And the woman there said, no, that's proprietary information. And I said, but I'm trying to find out if there's anything poisonous in tennis balls because I'm writing this book about dog health and longevity. And she said, sir, Wilson does not make tennis balls for dogs. It makes tennis balls for people playing the game of tennis. (laughs) And she's absolutely correct. (laughs) Uh, We should not expect uh, Wilson to be concerned about our dog's health when they're not in the business. No one is in the business of making tennis balls for dogs. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, when that, where you look at the pollutants that are in our dog's environments, that is horrific. You take us through the day and, and what a dog, the chemicals a dog may come into contact with. And that really is horrific. It is horrific. And what's even more horrific about it is that we ourselves are swimming through that vast chemical ocean uh, along with our dogs. However, because our dogs are smaller, they get a greater dose of these environmental pollutants per unit of body weight than do we, just as small children do. And as I point out, we're not going to get rid of these environmental pollutants until government and industry change how they operate. And in this regard, the European Union is quite ahead of the United States and and ought to be commended. But even so, in Europe, there are 
tons of, of nasty stuff floating around in the water and air and food. But one can put up some reasonable dikes and protect one's dog and oneself from them. And as, as I point out, some of the easiest to do are to change out plastic bowls, which may contain phthalates, which are endocrine disruptors, for stainless steel or glass bowls. A very easy solution. Uh, nor should anyone be uh, spraying herbicides on their lawn and trees if they're concerned about the health of their dogs. And another really easy step is to put in a water filtration device on one's tap. It removes chlorine, nitrates, heavy metals, and your tea and coffee will taste better, the water will taste better, and it'll be good for both you and your dog. Those are some very, very simple steps that all of us can take. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it is fascinating. As I say, some of it is worrying. Um, you you cover vaccinations and diet and so many things that we we just can't go into. I mean, every dog owner should read the book and and arm themselves with that knowledge. Um, but to come back to Pucker, um, you you want to be part of a team with him, don't you? And you you do allow him to make choices. It's not about having an undisciplined, untrained dog, but you do allow him to make choices about, you know, where he sleeps or things like that, that matter to him, don't you? Yes. And and I believe that we need to have more of an ongoing conversation with our dogs about the freedoms they most desire. After all, that's what we do for our best friends. We give them some freedom, space and, and liberty. And certainly I think the choices some dogs would love to have would be to to decide what they're going to eat more frequently, not eat the same thing day in and day out for their whole lives. Not only is that boring, it's also not very good for the dog. Uh, rotating a dog's food allows it to get its nutrients from several different sources and it doesn't expose them to the same heavy metals or pollutants again and again. So it'd be nice to give dogs that choice. It'd be nice to give them the choice to lead the walk and decide where they want to go on a particular day instead of always telling them. And I think another freedom that that dogs would really like is not to be commanded and chivied by their worried people. Rover come, Bella heal. Every time they pause to have a little chat with a canine friend or or smell something along the side of the walk or trail. Uh, I see this all the time around here. People thinking that they're creating an obedient dog by constantly chiving it to come. Well, the dog will come along. It may take 15 seconds or, or two minutes if we're patient. And I never wait for Pucka. I just keep walking and Two minutes later, there he is by my side. He'd had his own business to conduct. Uh, He had his own conversations. Uh, He knows humans whom I don't know. Just as the case with Merle, uh, I'll meet someone. The other day it happened in the backcountry. Someone skied by me as I was taking the skins off my skis. And Pucka gave him this really warm greeting. He said, oh, hi, Pucka. How are you doing? And then he introduced himself to me, hi, I'm I'm Dave. I live across the field. You don't know me, but Pucka comes over to our house often and and hangs around, sleeps by the fire, uh, investigates, and then leaves. 
And so here's Paca who has his own life, just as Merle had his own life. Uh, that's not part of mine. And I realize that all of us who live in suburbs and urban places cannot do that as readily as as we can here in the rural Western United States. However, there are many, many opportunities to allow dogs to have this freedom. I've uh, spent many a morning in Hyde Park uh, and watched the dogs roaming free there and playing. And those kind of parks are such a blessing for dogs and, and their people. And and everyone who has a dog ought to be encouraged to take their dogs to to those kind of places more often. Mm, yeah, they do get so much out of interacting, you know, with other dogs. Um, I'm aware we, we, we've sort of talked for ages and ages and that we need to bring things to a close. But before we bring things to a close, um, you mentioned that Pucker goes and visits other people. You have dogs, neighbourhood dogs, that come and visit you. Um, and Buck, I... I that that was one of the things that made me cry when you said how Buck sort of was a mentor to Pucker and you described that beautifully. But Buck envies Pucker his his bed, doesn't he? And can yes. you tell that story? <laughs> well, Buck would Buck would cross the field and spend the whole day with us and then his person Scott at ten o'clock at night would come over and pick Buck up and say, Come on, Buck, let's go home and out they'd go and two minutes later Buck would come running back fling himself on uh, Pucka's bed before that he would swipe his great massive head he's a 90 pound yellow lab against my thighs then fling himself on the bed and Scott would come back and I would say Scott he loves that bed so uh, being good dog people Scott and April bought Buck a bed just like Pucka's However, April simply went on the L.L. Bean website, that's a a big retailer of outdoor equipment in the United States, and bought him a bed that looked like Pucka's. However, it was the therapeutic L.L. Bean bed, not the premium L.L. Bean bed, and had a different filling. And when Buck received his therapeutic bed, he sniffed it and immediately tore big holes in it and walked across the field and in a huff threw himself on Pucka's bed. So April was at a loss to understand what happened. And I said, April, go on the website and look, you bought him the therapeutic bed, not the premium bed. It has a different filling. And obviously Buck knew that. So she rolled her eyes and, but Buck was a member of the family and his wishes needed to be respected. So she bought a premium bed, just like Pucka's, same size, same color, in the hopes that Buck would actually accept it. And it came, they opened it. I was there and Buck sniffed it and lay down and thumped his tail and said, the premium bed at last. <laughs> The book is absolutely beautiful. We've only really scratched the surface of it. There's so much more we could say. Um, but one of the things you, you do say is that um, you lived, you know, those years after Merle without your own dog. And now um, I think you're talking about the, the, how the sun's going down, but it doesn't matter because the, the dog light 
illuminates your life again now with Pucker. And that's beautiful because you have that partnership back again, don't you? Yes, yes. And and that's actually probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite chapter in the book uh, called In the Time of the Big Light. And uh, those of... Uh, you who who live up in the northern part of the United Kingdom have those long, wonderful days around the summer solstice. Uh, same here in the western part of the of the time zone, and so it stays late very long. And the light is big all summer when I had Papa, Pucka as a young puppy. But even as you say, Julie, as the sun descended and the winter solstice approached, uh, the light of Pukka was still big in my heart as it is right now. And my life was once again filled with dog light, which has given me such infinite joy. Mm. I hope Pukka's light shines for many, many years to come. Thank you, Ted. Thank you very much, Julie. It's always an absolute pleasure to talk to Ted. And he was gracious enough to agree to another interview to explore some of the aspects of the book that we just didn't have time to cover in this interview. So there's another in-depth interview with Ted coming very soon. In the meantime, you can find out more about Ted at www.tedkerasoti.com and there is a Pucker's Promise Facebook page too. Both those links are on the Dogcast Radio website along with some charming photos of Ted and Pucker. Till next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast radio by email you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com when contacting us by email if you have the facilities please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file that way we can include them directly in our program we can accept most formats for example wav mp3 all these methods of contacting us can be found on our website which is www.dogcastradio.com And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. Knock, knock. Who's there? Dogs go. Dogs go who? No, dogs go woof.